We all want saving, but the biggest plight we're all experiencing is not political, it's not social, it's not economical, it's spiritual. And the only way we can be saved from our sin is for someone who is a savior, a Messiah, to come and to bear our sin and to receive our sin on his behalf and then to save us from our sin. Well, hey, welcome to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham, and you are listening to a series in the book of John called Jesus Is. Today, we find ourselves in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28, in a message titled, Jesus is the Christ. Hope you enjoy it. So whether we want to admit it or not, we all have something in common here this morning. It's not that we need more coffee, though that may be something that we all need. We all have something that ties us together, and that is, as humans, we have a desire, a longing for salvation, a desire to be saved. Uh, The idea behind salvation is that there's some plight in the world, and I need to do something to escape that plight, or I need someone outside intervention or inside motivation to escape the plight that's in this world. Think about our entertainment for a moment. There's a movie that came out recently. I don't know if you've seen it. Some of you have. Don't give us a spoiler alert, but there's been a new movie that came out with Marvel uh, called Avengers Infinity War. And uh, I I just want to settle this once and for all. Uh, There's this big rivalry between DC and Marvel. Can we settle that Uh, just by by noise? uh, Who is a DC fan here today? DC fan. Exactly. Crickets, right? (laughs) How about Marvel fans? You know, there's the DC jokes like, you know, drain the swamp. Uh, There's those DC jokes about about the actual comic. But um, the idea behind this movie that just came out was that uh, there's a a nemesis, there's a villain, and he wants to wipe out half of the universe. He wants to destroy, annihilate, kill half of the universe. And the idea is that we need to be saved from utter destruction. And so we need these these superhuman or almost godlike you know, people to come and save us, to strengthen us, to come and fight the bad guys. There's a plight we're about to experience and we need someone to save us. And this is a narrative that runs within every single one of us and all of the the advertisements and things that we kind of look to for hope and for help in this world. Let me just take you on a little journey before we get into this text. You can kind of see what I'm talking about. There's plight in the world and there's a savior from that plight. For example, maybe the plight is hunger or war, or extremism, or evil regimes, or climate change. Who's going to save us from that? The idea is that a a global organization will come together and will work together uh, to save the planet. Whether it's the UN or the EU, we have the Paris Accords because we know we're going to destroy the planet through global warming or climate change. So as long as we get together, this large Uh, collaboration or coalition, then we'll be saved. We'll be saved from ourselves. We'll fix the problems of our planet. Or there's this plight. Uh, Our national values are beginning to shift, and the things that we want to see in our nation, they're shifting. So who's the savior? Who's the Messiah? A a political party, a politician. Many believe uh, that a political party can save a nation. Think about every single election cycle. You have Republicans, Democrats, Independents, and Vegans, and they're all vying for your vote. I'm going to save you. I'm going to be the one who will right the nation, will bring it back into the correct values. Throughout time, numerous regimes have sprung up on the backs of claims 
by the leaders that, hey, revolution will save our nation. Think about Russia. We have Lenin. Uh, in China, we have Mao. Uh, in Germany, Hitler. But see, a, a one-world leader or a ruler of a nation is incapable of bringing about salvation. Barack Obama ran with the words hope and believe. More recently, Donald Trump ran on the campaign, Make America Great Again. At the Republican National Convention, he said, I alone can fix the nation. See, the idea behind this, this motivation is that a political leader or party will fix, will right the wrongs that our nation uh, is heading towards with plight. What about this? Many of us, this is closer to home, face maybe obesity or sickness or disease or fatigue. And so who's the savior? Who's the Messiah? Well, it's nutrition or fitness. Just eat the right thing or do the right exercise and all will be well. I've seen the documentaries that kind of scared me. If you eat this certain food, you're going to die. So stop eating that food. Oh, I better stop eating that, right? Can't eat bacon anymore. I guess I'll die eating bacon. That's fine. Our family's been shopping at Earth Fair recently right up the road. And we like it. It's been good. It's, they have a daily deal and it's really cool. But one of the things I noticed about their logo is that the logo says Earth Fair, and then it says live longer. <laughs> the idea is we want to save you from premature death if you'll eat here. We're your savior. We're going uh, to feed you. Now, they're not paying me to advertise for them, but the idea is that are you sick? Well, you must be eating meat, so stop eating meat. You'll be saved. Oh, you eat processed food. No, no, no. You need to eat organic, farm-raised, non-GMO, plant-based, holistic donuts, and then <laughs> you'll be free from your plight. Uh, what about this? Maybe this is much more close to home. Someone who's struggling with addiction or psychological problems. Uh, maybe addicted to a substance or you're going through this a major issue uh, psychologically. You're stuck. You're an addict. Uh, you cannot save yourself. So you need someone outside of your power to come and help you be free. Whether it's a community, who's the savior here? Uh, a community, a clinic, or a coach. That community will hold you accountable and help you. Or many of us have said, well, I need to get my niece checked into that particular clinic because that will save her, that will help her. Or you gotta listen to this guru, you gotta read that book. This coach, that pastor, they'll help you get on track. This advice will save you. And maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just the numb of life has brought about pain, discomfort, or stress. And so who's going to save you from pain, discomfort, or stress? Well, prescription drugs. Uh, have you guys seen any, any shows on Netflix or Hulu? They, they often will have advertisements on television now or on pseudo-television, which is your Hulu. Um, you'll, you'll actually be interrupted by these advertisements for prescription drugs. Have you seen some of these advertisements? They're supposed to save you from something, but it's actually kind of comical. I, I actually saw an ad. This is a legit ad. I, this isn't fake. This wasn't on Babylon B. This is a real ad. I want to just cue this commercial right now. Watch this. Herb quit smoking with Chantix and support. Talk to your doctor about Chantix and a support plan that's right for you. Some people have had changes in behavior, hostility, agitation, depressed mood, and suicidal thoughts or actions while taking or after stopping Chantix. If you notice agitation, hostility, depression, or changes in behavior, thinking, or mood that are not typical for you, or if you develop suicidal thoughts or actions, stop taking Chantix and call your doctor right away. Talk to your doctor about any history of depression or other mental health problems, which can get worse while taking Chantix. Some people can have allergic or serious skin reactions to Chantix, some of which can be life-threatening. If you notice swelling of face, mouth, throat, or a rash, stop taking Chantix and see your doctor right away. Tell your doctor which medicines you're taking, as they may work differently when you quit smoking. Chantix dosing may be different if you have kidney problems. The most common side effect is nausea. 
Patients also reported trouble sleeping and vivid, unusual, or strange dreams. Until you know how Chantix may affect you, use caution when driving or operating machinery. Chantix should not be taken with other quit smoking products. Okay, okay, we gotta stop it. That's, that's enough. So do you know what people take Chantix to stop doing? Smoking. I'd rather die from smoking than Chantix, right? But see, that's the idea. You're experiencing plight, so this drug will save you or it will kill you, and then you won't have any plight. You'll, you'll definitely stop smoking at that point. And maybe it's not that. This is another plight that many of us feel, maybe even here this morning, loneliness. Maybe you feel loneliness. I'm alone. And so who's the savior? Well, a right relationship. See, we have this soulmate culture that kind of propagates this idea that as long as I meet the right person, then that will fix my problems, my loneliness. And so we've got online dating websites. We have apps that kind of build this idea that someone, if I meet that right person, that will save me. I'm going to meet them on match.com. Okay, maybe not christianmingle.com. Definitely not Tinder. We're going to stay away from that one, right? That person will save me. Uh, Writer Joe Hill makes this observation about how love relationships have taken the place of God. He says this, God saves, but not now and not here. His salvation, it's on layaway. Like all grifters, he asks you to pay now and take it on faith that you will receive later. Whereas relationships offer a different sort of salvation, more immediate and fulfilling. They don't put off their love for a distant, ill-defined eternity, but make a gift of it in the here and now, frequently to those who deserve it least. Will the right relationship save you from loneliness? Well, even more close to home, Every one of us at some point in our life will face what I call an existential emptiness or a lack of meaning. What's the purpose of my life? Why am I here? And the savior, the functional savior, is I save myself. It's not someone from the outside with the power, but I have the power through religious or spiritual exercise to save myself. Uh, I'm experiencing plight, so I do something to save myself. That is the mantra, by the way, of Eastern religion. Uh, one writer who wrote Awakening Your Inner Guru <laughs> says, no one and nothing outside of you can give you salvation or free you from misery. You have to light your own lamp. You have to know the miniature universe that you yourself are. Oh, I'm a miniature universe. See, we're constantly looking to technology, to science, to philosophy, thinking if we could just invent the right thing, discover the right thing, learn the right thing, then I can save myself. But listen, I want you to listen very carefully. Religion does not save. Organizations may help, but they don't save. The right relationship will not save you today. Politicians definitely do not save. We all want saving, but the biggest plight we're all experiencing is not political, it's not social, it's not economical, it's spiritual. And the only way we can be saved from our sin is for someone who is a savior, a Messiah, to come and to bear our sin and to receive our sin on his behalf, and then to save us from our sin. And you need someone from the outside because guess what? We're all sinners. We need someone to come and to save us and intervene. And that's where we find ourselves in John chapter 1, verse 19. We see people coming to John to ask him, who are you and why are you baptizing? And they have a series of ideas of who they think he is, but they're wrong. And so John sets the record straight and points not to himself, but to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And this is kind of part one of two. We're going to see Jesus last week as the Word. Today we're going to see him as the Christ, and next week the Lamb of God. So it's kind of a two-parter. Today he's the Christ, next week he is the Lamb of God. And so here's the outline that we're going to use today 
uh, for this text. We're going to look today at John's confession. So if you're taking notes today, hopefully you are. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 23 is John's confession. And then we're going to see John's Christ and what the word Christ actually means, verses 24 through 26. And then we're going to see John's condition. What does that leave John Uh, What type of condition is he left in in verses 27 and 28? So let's look at verse 19, and we'll look at John's confession. It says, now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So as we begin this section, note with me, if you're taking note, you might want to circle. This is John, but it's not the writer of the gospel of John. It's John the Baptist. And you might say, well, Are you sure he's not Presbyterian? Okay, we'll call him John the Baptizer, okay, because he's not actually Baptist, but he's the one who baptizes. So uh, he's not the writer of this gospel. He's different. And we studied his ministry when we looked at Malachi earlier this year. So John the Baptist, or Baptizer, is baptizing people in the Jordan River. Now, note that little phrase we quickly read over. It says in verse 19 that the Jews sent priests and Levites. You might want to circle or underline the word or phrase, the Jews. That is used over 70 times in the Gospel of John. And it's always, listen, it's always used about those who are in opposition to Jesus. When it says the Jews, it's saying the ones who were against Jesus. We aren't even 19 verses into this account, and we already see verse 11 coming true. That he came to his own, but his own, they didn't want to receive him. One person says this, that the gospel of John shows us two primary things. Number one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And number two, the rejection of Jesus Christ. We're going to see how Jesus is revealed. We've already seen starting last week. But we're also going to see that as he's revealed, people want to have nothing to do with it. Barclay says this of John's gospel. He says, it is equally the story of God's offer and man's refusal, the story of God's love and man's sin, the story of Jesus Christ's invitation and man's rejection. The fourth gospel is the gospel in which love and warning are uniquely and vividly combined. Today, I want to put this more on you. You have the opportunity to receive or to reject Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the scriptures, as he's revealed today in the preaching of his word. Jesus is the savior. Have you received him? Uh, See, the Jews, the opposition to Jesus, they sent some people. Notice who they sent. They sent a deputation of two different groups. They sent, first of all, priests, and secondly, Levites. The priests were those who kind of carried out the, the, the important, critical services in the temple. And they were priests by descent. In fact, you had to be born as a descendant of Aaron, to be a priest. It didn't matter how much you wanted to. I just really want to be a priest. We have to be born uh, to be a priest. So Luke chapter 1, verse 5, Luke 1, 5 tells us that John's father was Zechariah, and he was a priest. And so it's natural for the priest to say, hey, here's one of our guys. Let's see what's going on. Well, what about the Levites? The Levites were the servants who attended to the common duties Uh, But this delegation of Levites was sent from the religious leaders, we learn later in verse 24, uh, that they were sent from the Pharisees, made up uh, of a collection from the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the highest official body over Jerusalem. They were kind of the uh, internal affairs that Rome allowed to oversee anything that happened 
spiritually or religiously within Israel. And one of the things that God had said back in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and 18, he said, okay, it's, it's up to you, nation of Israel, to identify and give a thumbs up or thumbs down to any prophet that represents me. If there's a prophet that comes along and starts speaking, you need to make sure and confirm, verify if this guy's legit or not. And so uh, the Sanhedrin was kind of the acting body. And so they go, wait a minute, there's a guy who is beginning to preach and he's a prophet and all these people are going out to him, to the Jordan. Let's send a delegation and uh, some emissaries to make sure this guy is who he says he is. And so their question makes sense. Who are you? Who are you? Look at verse 20. It says that John confessed, did not deny, but confessed, well, I'm not the Christ. And they said, well, what then? Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Or are you the prophet? No. Huh. John confesses, does not deny, but says, I am not three people. I'm not three things. First, I'm not the Christ. Second, I'm not Elijah. And third, I'm not the prophet. Now, we're going to look at each one of these. Notice verse 20 where he says, I'm not the Christ. You see that definite article, the? Okay. I didn't know this, but for years I thought Christ was Jesus' last name. Right, like Jesus Christ, that's his last name. And then if you're on certain job sites, he has a middle name and it's H. Okay, I didn't realize that growing up, right? No, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ is his title. On the screen, the word Christ means the anointed one or the Messiah. Literally, it means the anointed one. And the Israelites believed in a savior of ultimate wisdom and leadership in the image of Moses and in the image of David as a warrior king. And this leader would come and he would overwhelm all the oppression that they were facing and literally establish an eternal earthly kingdom for the Jews by his might and his power. One person says this, messianic expectations were running high in Israel as people longed for deliverance from Roman rule. Based on different promises in the Hebrew scriptures, the people were expecting that one day God would send an especially great person, a mighty deliverer, who would represent God in a unique way and usher in an age of righteousness and peace, including deliverance from foreign rule. That's why, by the way, as a little aside, we get a little bit of a little aside here. That's why the disciples were so thrown off when he didn't overthrow Rome, but Rome crucified him. That's why they're like, wait, hold on. You're not here to save us from political oppression? Oh, you're here to save us from spiritual oppression. Because that's the bigger plight, right? And they didn't realize that. So they're, they're kind of like, wait, this is... Now I'm really let down. I thought, I thought he was supposed to kind of vanquish Rome, not die at the hands of Rome. So a lot of confusion. Um, so the idea is who's going to save us from the greatest plight? It's the Messiah. It's the Christ. But John says, that's not me. That's not me. I'm not the Christ. Well, then they say, well, what about, secondly, Elijah? Are you Elijah? The Jews expected Elijah to return to the earth prior to the coming of their Messiah. This guy, John the Baptist, certainly seemed a lot like Elijah. They both kind of had that rugged wilderness lifestyle. They both had a fiery message of judgment. And Malachi 4.5, remember we studied this, uh, tells us God will send Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he'll restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers before uh, this day of judgment. And so they understood before Messiah comes, Elijah would come. But, but they actually believed that he would literally come in, in the flesh. Remember, Elijah did not die. He was carried to heaven in a fiery chariot. And they're like, is that you? Are you the embodiment of Elijah? And he says, no, no, that's not me. And then they said, thirdly, well, are you the, the prophet? Notice again, 
that definite article, the, are you the prophet, capital P? Uh, Not a prophet, but the prophet. See, the Jews, through Moses, were expecting a very special prophet. Deuteronomy 18.15 on the screen says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. So the Jews distinguished this Latter-day prophet from the Messiah. They thought it would be someone different. Uh, But early Christian preachers like Peter and Stephen, um, they equated the prophet with Messiah. It'd be the same one. Uh, You can look up later Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7 for those references. So you know what that means? That means the Jews are still waiting for a Messiah and a prophet. They're waiting for these two guys to show up. A Messiah who will save and bring world peace and a prophet who will proclaim him. Wow. Well, I believe that's what's going to set up uh, a time in the future, not too distant future, when Antichrist and false prophets show up on the scene. So John says, hey, no, that's not me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Look at verse 22. Then they said to him, well, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? We need to come back with something here. Who was this guy? Well, he's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. Well, who is he? (laughs) I got nothing. His name's John. That's all I got. And what are we supposed to say? What do you say about yourself? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am, we'll get into that a little bit later. I am, and then he quotes Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. So if you're following with me, John says, okay, here's who I am. I'm a voice. I'm crying in the wilderness. And my message is to make straight the way of the Lord. That's my message. Prepare your hearts, make straight the way of the Lord. One person says this to kind of give us an understanding. It says, the imagery is that, uh, was that before a king would visit a town, a messenger would go before him to announce his coming. The townspeople would hurry out to clear away the obstacles and fill in the washed out parts of the road to smooth the way for the king's coming. The messenger didn't call attention to himself, but to the coming king. And John here makes it clear that the coming king is none other than the Lord. Messiah is God. Now, earlier in verse 8 of chapter 1, go back with me, just turn the page or scroll up on your screen. John chapter 1 verse 8 says this. This is John the apostle speaking about John the Baptist. says in verse 8, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And that light, Jesus, was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Okay, so we learn, okay, John is not the light, but he bears witness of the light. I think we all understand the analogy of light and light bulbs and lamps. I I have a lamp on my desk at our new church office, which is amazing church office. Love what God's doing through that space. If you haven't been yet, why not? Um, it's just great. So on my desk, there's a lamp, and um, it's actually a similar. It reminds me of the lamp from Pixar movies. You know the Pixar lamp? Uh, I think his name's Luxor, I think. Um, anyway, I nicknamed my lamp John. I nicknamed him John. Um, the reason I call him John is because I think he's a great-looking light, but I don't need him on my desk to look good. I need him to just shine a light, right? That's what I need him for. Uh, and so, like, I'm, I'm speaking about him like he's a person. I love you, John. You know, hopefully you're listening online, right? So you follow me, right? You follow me. The lamp isn't as much important as the light that's emanating from it, right? And one person says this, it's the glow 
of the bulb that lights the room, not the shine of the brass. It's the glow of the bulb, not the shine of the brass. See, John wanted to point attention away from himself and on to Jesus. You know, as late as 8250, the Clementine recognitions tell us that there were some of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, who preached about him as if he was the Messiah. They beheld him in such a high light. In fact, Jesus said, there's none given born of women that are as great as John the Baptist. There's a second part of that verse we'll save for later. But John wanted it to be clear, hey, there's no rivalry here. I'm not the Savior. I'm simply preparing the way of the Lord. So that's John's confession. That's our first point today, John's confession. Let's look at John's Christ. Look at verse 24. It says, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. We'll learn a lot more about them as our study progresses. And they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not no. Now, this is a valid question. Why are you baptizing? What is baptism? Uh, notice verse 24 tells us that these priests and Levites were sent from the Pharisees. They want to know why he baptizes if you're not one of these three people. Uh, people were baptized in John's day, but it's different than the baptism that we do today. We're going to have a baptism after service today. And as the service concludes, we want you to walk out the door, uh, go down the hall, take a right, and just hang out outside. Don't jump in the pool, all right? Just hang out for a minute. We're going to have lifeguards, and we're going to have an incredible time of hearing the testimony of transformed lives and see people uh, obey the Lord in uh, water baptism, okay? But uh, this is a little bit different what we do than what the Jews did, okay? The Christian idea of baptism didn't come on the scene until after Jesus rose from the dead. Um, if you were a Gentile a person born outside of, of the Jewish nation, and you wanted to become a religious Jew, you would be baptized. That is what we call proselyte baptism. And the idea is I want to identify with the Jewish religion. So I'm going to baptize, but you baptized yourself. You'd actually go under the water yourself. You do kind of a self-dunk. You know, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to self-baptize. Now I am expressing my desire uh, to be a, a religious Jew. Uh, so that's a little bit different than what we do, right? Also, the Israelites were never baptized. That's not a thing. Why? Because they already belong to God. I don't need to be identified with God. I'm already uh, a follower of God. I'm already part of the nation of Israel, so I don't need to be washed. But see, John's baptism was completely different. His baptism was for Jews. Uh, it was a sign of cleansing and washing and repentance and faith, and it wasn't self-administered. He was the one doing the baptism. God's chosen people needed to humble themselves and repent and turn in faith to the coming Messiah. So notice verse 26. He says, I baptize with water, but huh, there stands one among you whom you do not know. Now, Matthew's gospel colors in another thing that he said here. John didn't capture it, but Matthew's gospel colors in a little bit one of the statements that he said. He says this on the screen, Matthew 3, 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. And John, we saw that he's not even worthy to loose them. We'll, we'll reconcile that idea in a minute. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is a picture of harvest. He's going to come as a harvester. 
And he's coming, and he's going to baptize, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John is, of course, pointing them to the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, who would have an even more powerful baptism. Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And John says, he's standing here among you, but you don't even know him. If you knew him, you would know that he's the Messiah. He's your Savior. Now, when we come face-to-face with our Savior, then we come to understand who we are. John says, this is who he is. You don't know him yet, but you will know him. When you come face-to-face with him, you'll know him. And I know him. And because I know him, I'm not even worthy to carry or to loose his sandal. I'm not worthy. And so look at the third idea this morning, verses 27 and 28, John's condition. This is what he goes on to say in verse 27. He says, it is he, capital H, this is Jesus, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. And then it says, these things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptized. And a lot of scholars stress about that location. Bethany, where is it? It's on the eastern side of the Jordan. We don't need to get stressed about it. Uh, Just know that it's on the Jordan. And so John says, you know, I'm unworthy to even loosen his sandal strap, to carry it, to carry his sandal. What is that about? Well, I think it's interesting. Uh, Rabbi Joshua ben Levi had a famous uh, saying around that time. Here's what this famous rabbi, contemporary, said. He said, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosing of his sandal thong. In other words, you don't you do everything that you're supposed to do as a disciple of a master. Do everything for your master. But the, the thing that's beneath you, the one thing that's beneath you is to handle his feet. Don't pick up his sandal. Don't loosen it. You don't wash his feet. That's something that the lowest of low servants do. And you're not uh, going to have to do that. You do everything else, uh, but not that. In other words, John says, I'm not even worthy. Not even worthy to follow him. I'm not even... I'm not even worthy to be the lowest of the lowest slave. I'm not just a follower. I'm not even worthy to be in his presence. I can't even do what the menial slave would do. I'm not even at that lowest level. I'm so unworthy, I'm not even a slave. Now later, John says something profound regarding Jesus' growing ministry and his own shrinking influence. And I want us to turn there. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 3. Flip over to John chapter 3, starting in verse 25. Listen to what John says about himself and about Jesus. John chapter three, verse 25 says, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews, there they are again, about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you've testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Can we get an amen for that? Amen. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, the one who stands and hears him, the one who gives the toast, (laughs) rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Look at verse 30 with me. What an incredible verse for us to just maybe let marinate in our hearts today. He must increase, but I must decrease. Wow. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. In a real literal way, 
John's ministry began to diminish and Jesus' ministry would increase, but in a very spiritual and practical way. Men in our lives, he must, de- he must increase and we must decrease. In our marriages, he must increase and we must decrease. In our parenting, he must increase and we must decrease. In our work responsibilities and our attitudes, he must increase and we must decrease. In our traffic and driving, he must increase and we must decrease. See, because John understood who Jesus was, he understood who he was. Go back with me to John chapter one. Because John understood who Jesus was, he understood who he was. Look at verse 27 again. It is he coming after me. He's preferred before me. Whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. I am not, but I know I am. Louis Giglio made that phrase pretty popular. I am not, but I know I am. Not I know I am, but I know I am, the great I am. I am not, but I know I am. There's so much application in this passage that I want to unpack. And before we close, I want to spend a moment on the concept of identity because I think we're in a weird place as a culture when it comes to uh, identity. So if you'd permit me, I want to look at four aspects from this text. There's much more about identity, but four aspects of identity from John's response. And I want us to kind of apply to where we're at today culturally. Okay, first of all, to understand our identity, um, we must first have a rejection of false ideas. If you're taking note, our identity involves rejecting false ideas. John's identity, notice, it was a rejection of conceptions and biases and prejudices. Right? People asked him, hey, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he has to say, no, I'm not any of those things. They came to him with their own set of ideas as they're traveling down from Jerusalem. This convoy on their way, kind of walking together. Who do you think this guy is? He's probably the Christ. There's some scripture that validates what he's doing. He's probably Elijah. Seems a lot like him. Maybe he's the prophet. He is speaking boldly. And so they have these ideas and these preconceptions as they show up. Are you these things? We think that you're these things. And he has to say, no, 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 no. Let me reject this shell of false ideas about me because that's not who I am. Listen, our identity, who we are, is often defined by the preconceptions put on us by society and by family, by others. And we define our identity at an incredibly young age. When we're young, we're constantly trying to identify who we are. And so we make this statement on the screen. We say, I am fill in the blank. But we do that based on our relationship with others from a young age. Think about it. In school, we compare ourselves to others and we fill in that statement. I am short. I am tall. I am smart. I'm dumb. I'm a pastor's kid. (laughs) I'm overweight. I'm skinny. I'm cool. I'm a nerd. I'm white. I'm black. I'm a Christian. I'm not sure what I am. Then when we near our teen years, here's what we do. We take that statement and we begin investigating and we we swap it around and turn it into a question. And then we say, am I fill in the blank? Am I cool or am I a nerd? Uh, am I overweight or am I skinny? Am I smart or am I stupid? Am I really vegan? Right, we begin to ask these questions seeking answers to our identity, but it doesn't get answered quickly. We quickly say, well, I'm a freshman. Now I'm a, a sophomore. Now I'm a junior. Now I'm a senior. Now I'm a freshman again. What happened, right? Now I'm a grad student. Now I'm an intern. Now I am starting my career. Now I'm a father. <laughs> Help me, Lord. Right? Now I'm a father. Now I'm a father of many. 
right? Now I am seeking welfare, right? And so I, I am these things. I am, I am, I am. All through life. I'm a Republican. I'm athletic. I'm type A. I'm ENFJ. Whatever it might be. But see, a lot of us, we fill in that statement, I am blank, in a very specific way. Put that, put that statement back up. I am blank. I want you just for a couple seconds to think about how you would answer that right now. If I had you stand up here, and I'm going to bring up my friend here. I'm going to have you introduce yourself. Here's the microphone. I am, and you'd say your name, and tell us about yourself. I am, what would the response be? Don't yell it out. Think about it for a minute. I am what? See, many men will complete that sentence with what they do for work. I am a lawyer, or I am retired. Be jealous. Whereas many women will complete it by talking about their relationship with others. I am a mother of two. Often people will state where they live or what emotion they're currently experiencing. Uh, If they're related to someone important, they'd say, I'm Pilgrim's friend or I'm Pilgrim's brother, right? And I'm not someone famous or important, but you might relate yourself to someone. I am the baby of the family or I'm the oldest of the family. But truly understanding our identity It has to begin with first dismantling cultural conceptions, biases, and prejudices, right? We have to undo what the culture says. Oh, well, you're this because you're this. I see your outside form, your exterior, so you must be this, right? Didn't our parents tell us don't judge a book by its cover, right? What we look like on the outside, how we were raised, how we were born, doesn't mean we are those things. I happen to be a white male, but that doesn't mean I'm sexist or racist, right? And we lump people together in people groups and say, well, all people are like that. And then, sadly, we begin to laugh and we characterize and categorize and classify people all together and just assume, well, all people that are like that are like that. Oh, all Asian people are like that. All Hispanic people are like that. Oh, all millennials are like that. All old people are like that. Oh, he must be like that because he's Italian, right? We do that. And sadly, see, we must know who we are, and that means rejecting some of those projections that have been thrown on us. And John does that. He says, no, I'm not any of those things. See, knowing, I'll put this on the screen, knowing who we are means knowing who we are not. Knowing who we are means knowing who we are not. We need to know who we are not today. So our identity is a rejection of false ideas. Secondly, it's, it's realistic and not fantasy or not fantastic. The word fantastic and fantasy, same root idea. So John's identity was realistic. They're like, hey, you're the Christ, aren't you? He's like, no. Hey, you're Elijah. No. You're the prophet. No, I'm not. In his mind, he could start thinking, actually, I am pretty amazing, right? I'm hashtag awesome. So I could be. I could be the prophet. We'll see. Like, stay with me for a little while. Track with me. We'll see where I'm at. No. He's not trying to be someone that he wasn't. You and I, often our identity, guys, it's unrealistic. And what has helped propagate that? Social media, right? We all know you want to be the perfect mom. So you take that picture and you post that status and everyone in the world sees, man, that is the perfect mom. But you know what happens right after that picture is posted, right? The kids start going crazy. The house is a wreck. It falls apart. <laughs> this happened to us on Easter. We had our Easter services. No, no, no. It wasn't Easter. It was, uh, it was Christmas Eve because it was in the evening. We tried to get a picture with our family on Christmas Eve, all dressed up at home with our with our Protestant dog, Luther. We were trying to get this picture together with Luther, and he's this puppy going crazy, right? So we set up our camera to kind of hit the timer, right? And so we, we kind of sitting there, and I'm like, I hear it beeping. I'm like, it's coming, and, and everything's great. And then the dog kind of gets restless, and he's moving around. 
you know, he's panting. He's jumping up on me. I'm like, stop it, Luther. And so the picture, the first picture is me going, right? Uh, the family's all smiling. Luther's, you know, he's blurry, right? The face of the dog's blurry, and I'm going, uh, so I look at it. <laughs> Great. All right, let's try this again. I'm kidding you not. There's like 15 pictures that I deleted because they're never going to see the light of day, right? This would be hilarious if I had those. Thankfully, we don't. But like in succession of like the next one was, you know, like Aiden decided to do a silly face and then London wasn't looking or Jen was yawning and here we go. And so the picture that came through that you saw on Instagram was, was literally me smiling through my teeth. Everyone smile. Merry Christmas, right? That was the actual picture that made it. See, that's us, man. So often we want people to say, everything's great, we're happy, and it's unrealistic. It's not real. Many people today want to self-identify as someone else. Not realistic, but fantasy. I want to self-identify as a different gender, a different age, a different race. We look up Ancestry.com and find our DNA, and we're hoping something exotic will, will be there. Or maybe I'm Irish, and what we find, oh, my ancestors are from Antarctica. How did that happen? I'm not sure what's going on here. We dress up and we attend Comic-Con, I don't, uh, as a favorite cartoon character or, or a comic character. We go online or video games and we change our avatar to be something exotic, all to escape the realistic. That new Spielberg movie, Ready Player One, and it captures this perfectly. But see, knowing who we are means knowing who we are not. You're not perfect, Mom. Uh, you're not to be someone else. Get real. Be real. Let's be who we are. And so he rejects this fantasy idea, and he's realistic. Now, I'm not any of those things. I think we're only gonna have healing in the church if we understand who we are, and that means who we're not. Thirdly, our identity is rooted in the scriptures. Notice that John says, okay, do you wanna know who I am? Let me bring you back to the Bible. Here's what the Bible says about me. Now, in a very literal way, the Bible spoke about John, literally. It told us who he is. He quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, where it's prophesied a forerunner would come before the Christ. John says, I'm that guy. I'm the voice, and Israel's the wilderness, spiritually. I'm the voice, and the wilderness is Israel, spiritually. Uh, he says that my identity is rooted and grounded in what the Word says. Today, church, where do you find your identity rooted and grounded? I want to speak very directly to you. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You are not the oops baby that your parents have told you you were. You were created in the imago Dei, the image of God. You belong to him. You were made on purpose for a purpose. Don't let anyone tell you anything differently. You were kind of a, an accident, a mistake. No, you were designed by God in your mother's womb to be fearfully and wonderfully made. And he's created you to be used for his glory and our community's good. And so the scriptures explain who we are and ground our identity. In a very real way, that happened to John, but that happens to you and I. We can know who we are by looking at the word. Finally, our identity, number four, is it's actually raised up in Christ. See, Jesus elevates John's identity. Did you notice John said, I'm not, secondly, Elijah. I'm not him. But did you know Jesus did recognize him as Elijah? See, later in Matthew 11, 4, uh, 14 and 17:11, Matthew 11:14 and 17:11, Jesus says John the Baptist is the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. Before John was born, the angel came to his father Zechariah and quotes the same passage of scripture in Malachi. 
See, John didn't see that about himself. No, I'm not Elijah. Jesus said, yeah, he was Elijah. Jesus saw something about him that he didn't even recognize in himself. Leon Morris says this, Jesus confers on John his true significance. No man is what he himself thinks he is. He is only what Jesus knows him to be. See, John doesn't see himself like this, but Jesus did. And see, that's why when it comes to our identity, knowing who we are, I'll put this on the screen, knowing who we are means knowing whose we are. To know who you are, you need to know whose you are. And you this morning belong to Jesus. You belong to Christ. So with that in mind, understanding our identity, looking at John, I want to close this morning and invite our band forward and uh, just consider a few things. You guys can close your Bibles this morning and just get settled as we close. The band's going to come up and close this in song. So Louis Giglio has this phrase, I am not, but I know I am. I know the great I am. Did you know the word uh, humility or humble has the same root word as humus, which really means to come from the soil. To really understand who we are, we have to understand that we're dust. That you and I, though we're dust, we're still created and formed in his image. I know who I am because I know whose I am. And I may be unworthy today, completely unworthy, but Jesus is worthy. Jesus alone is worthy. This same John would receive this vision of who Jesus was in Revelation. And in chapter five, he gives us this incredible glimpse into heaven. And in Revelation chapter five, there's a moment where this same writer of John's gospel begins to weep. He begins to be overcome and overwhelmed. Why? Because as he's looking throughout all of the redeemed in heaven, he looks and he goes, no one's worthy to open the scroll. There's not a single person who's worthy. In all of creation, there is none who are worthy. And he just begins to weep. He begins to sob. There's no one worthy. No one. In Revelation 5.5, it says that one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, which means look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, In the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lord each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Prayers that we pray are held in these bowls of incense. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. You and I are unworthy, but there stands one who alone is worthy. Spurgeon says this on the screen. Jesus is worthy of my life, worthy of my love, worthy of everything I can say for him. He's worthy of a thousand times more than that. Worthy of all the music and harps on earth. Worthy of all the songs of all the sweetest singers. 
worthy of all the poetry of the best writers, worthy of all the adoration of every knee. He is worthy of all that every man has or can conceive or can compass. He's worthy to be adored of all that are in the earth and under the earth and in the sea and in the heavens and in the heavens of heavens. He is worthy. He's worthy. In light of his worth this morning, will you confess Christ? Will you trust Christ? Will you look to Christ? Will you receive Christ? Will you stand with me this morning? I want to sing together that he is worth. Lord, we thank you that you are worthy of all of our praise and our adoration. You are the Christ. You're the Savior. We can't be saved by trying harder, doing better, but by faith in the risen Savior who conquered sin and death. Save us, we pray. Hosanna from our sin. We love you, and we thank you that you alone are worthy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. God bless you, and remember, it's all about Jesus.